This is an IMA podcast. The Institute of Modern Art is a contemporary art space in Brisbane, Australia. Since 1975, we have been presenting cutting-edge visual arts through our annual program of exhibitions, public programs, publications, and off-site initiatives by local, national, and international artists. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where the IMA now stands, the land of the Yuggera and Turrbal people. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So, there have been a lot of changes in the Australian art magazine publishing scene over the last 10 years. Some magazines were defunded and folded. However, commercial titles, including Vault, have thrived. Published quarterly, Vault is probably now the country's leading art magazine and it is edited by Alison Kubler from Brisbane. <laughs> Bit of boosterism. Um, <laughs> we're here today to celebrate and launch the new issue, number 44, the future issue. I'm going to ask Alison a few questions about the issue and about Vault in general. So welcome, Alison. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming, everybody, on a Saturday. It's very, very nice of you. <laughs> So um, how long have you been editor? What does the job entail? And where is the fun? Okay. Well, I should start with the last bit. <laughs> where is the fun? I do ask myself that on a regular basis. I've been editor for five years. It does feel like much longer. <laughs> uh, the job is a very interesting one. We're an incredibly small team. And I would just like to point out um, Grace Sandals, who is our publishing manager and so, so much more uh, for Vault. Vault is me, Grace, our designer. That is Vault. And that is not a lie. It's a very, very small team. And then, of course, our fabulous contributors, several of whom are here today, Robert, Louise, others. And so, so it's a very small team. And we operate, we're very lean. And it's a, it's a, every time we put an issue to bed, I'm like, oh, thank God for that. And then Grace is like, right, let's have a meeting tomorrow about the next one. I'm like, oh, please, I just need a tiny break. So, it's, But that's the nature of, even though it's a quarterly, it's, it, the turnaround is really fast. And so even now we're looking at what's happening in the middle of 2024 and how to make that, you know, to capture that. Yeah, so does that answer your question, how we do it? <laughs> um, a bit of it. Mm. Um, so it's one of a number of hats that you wear in the art world. Yes. And it must make all sorts of other things possible through all sorts of mm. things like connectivity. Yes, absolutely. So you're uh, interviewing, for instance, Jordan Wolfson, mm -hmm. uh, who's showing at the um, NGA That's right. soon. And you have, uh, you're on the council of the NGA. That's right. So uh, how does being editor of Vault... Um, uh, support mm. the other work that you do yeah in, yeah in, in the scene no i think that's a very good question and sometimes there are perfect synergies and it works really well and other times with someone like jordan which is a real coup for vault to have jordan wolfson in this issue and even though he's showing at the national gallery and i sit on the council it still all goes through his new york gallery so it was really touch and go as to whether we would pull that off. And I guess that goes with anything. So, you know, we're just in this issue as well, there's Jenny Holzer. And so that whole process 
is very long-winded. So when I'm acting as editor, I'm not really acting as a council member, so I have to go through all the formal processes. But yeah, sometimes it's really great. Like it's a, a fantastic opportunity. And, and, and with Jordan, he's actually, this is jumping ahead because you might be going to get there, but he's also very interview shy now <laughs> because he has, you know, he pretty much doesn't really do them anymore. And he is um, disinclined to be on social media and having interactions. And when we spoke, he talked about a particular New York uh, article, which you can all Google. <laughs> And it was so um, traumatic for him that he actually talked about having PTSD after that article and he had to take himself off everything and literally went to see a therapist after it because it was, so much of it was incorrect. And what he said to me felt like character assassination and he was very honest about it. He said, I, I, obviously, I'm a, this person that people think I am, but... That article was so much more than that. So in this instance, we really had to jump through a lot of hoops. And what, what we do with um, Vault is we, I always have about six stories in backup, just in case <laughs> something falls over. And it falls over a lot. Things fall over a lot. Writers with writer's block. Well, sometimes. <laughs> but I always make exceptions for you, Robert. No, <laughs> 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 so Robert is... Robert is great because I always know that Robert will get it. Robert's always writes me this like a message that says, "So what's the exact deadline?" I'm like, "Well, it was last week, Robert." But the thing is, Robert will always send me something that is absolutely perfect and requires nothing. So I'm I'm so happy to accommodate that. <laughs> um, yeah, so that you know, it's always touch and go. Like you never know if, if it's really going to come off. And Jordan was the example, right? So it was like, okay, yes, I'll do something. And he was he was very very generous about it, really um, lovely and so honest. And then I presented the interview back to him, because I also am one of those editors who thinks that you should. I think you should respect the artist. I don't love that a lot of um, journals and articles and newspapers don't do that. I don't understand the gotcha moment. Like, I'm not in the business of, I'm not the career mail. Vault is different. You know, I, I think that there is a, a push and pull, you know, and Louise is sitting here, like, Louise will do that too, you know, and she has asked me before, is it okay if I send it to the artist? I'm like, 100%. Like, why would you not want to get it right? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not, that's not the purpose of it. So he was very, very honest and his answers are amazing. So if you go into the article... And you can QR code it and get the full the full piece because we talked for a really long time. But in that process, all of these images were under embargo. So no one has seen anything at all of the Jordan Wolfson. And as we got to the end, like I want to say days out, like Grace is like nipping at straws, like, oh my God. And I was like, well, we, and then we were like, we don't really want to use colored sculpture or a female figure because it's been done before. So we'll go with something else. And then out of the blue, he says, I want to give you an image. And the NGA were like, we don't want you to have an image. I'm like, no, I think you should let us have an image. <laughs> this is a really good idea. And so he's like, no, no, I want you to have an image. So the thing about this image too, and all of these images, is that they've been um, shot by David Sims. And if you, if you know much about fashion, he's like the pinnacle of fashion photographers in the world, like mega, mega star. And so then we had to get permission from David Sims. So, so Jordan had said, I want them to have this. And then we had to get David Sims to say, yes, you can have that. And that took a long time. Meanwhile, Grace is having a heart attack. I'm like, no, I think it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. So that's exactly how that happened. And that was just because I think 
I think he trusted the process because I was honest with him and said, you can have a look. And yeah. I mean, it's kind of a teaser image, isn't it? It's that a teaser tells image. you everything and nothing all I know. at once. I can and tell you a bit more about it if you're interested because yeah. it is, it's an amazing work. Yeah. So he wanted to give you a little something, yeah. a little something. Yeah. A trailer. It's a trailer. That's right. <laughs> um, how do you curate each issue? Mm. Um, how far out do you start with planning and what yeah. are you looking for? And uh, how, how much do you stay on track? How much do you go off track? No, we divert a lot. <laughs> yeah. We always start out with a plan, but that's one of the lovely things about being independent publishers is that sometimes things fall into your lap and you don't expect it to happen quite that way. And, I mean, the, the story with Matthew Barney was a bit like that. It just fell into our lap and I was like, I think we should do this because that's, a, you know, it's Matthew Barney. <laughs> so we, we do plan a long way ahead. Like, I know all the shows that are coming up and wanting, and we'll have a fairly concrete list of what we want, but things do fall over a lot. So you have to, and it's not always that they just fall over completely. They just don't, you can't get them within the time frame that you want them. So you've got to have that. So with our themed issues, and this one is a themed issue, we don't theme every issue. So that would be, that would probably kill me if I themed every issue. So we try to be a little bit more serendipitous because I kind of like that. I like it when someone suddenly says, oh, I just met this person and wouldn't it be amazing if we could do something on that? So we will sometimes do that right to the end, you know, slip a story in there. That's kind of how the planning goes. But also, we're, we're, because we are, we're not beholden to what, who is showing what, uh, a lot of journals and magazines are, and we don't really do that. So we, we will often do stories on artists who are deceased, you know, or... Um, from the past or and, and so we, we we i'm kind of interested in that i like to look back more rather than just do what is current now or who's showing now or where yeah try to mix it up hmm. and just keep it i think the thing is for me i always have this idea that we're different to the other journals in australia because we're not we're not tied to australia we're not um what i want it to be is that you will open the journal and you will read and you will see an Australian artist alongside an international artist alongside a New Zealand artist alongside a fashion designer. So it's much more seamless. And the funny thing is, all a lot of the people we deal with now don't even know that we're based in Australia, which is funny. So I get these invitations all the time to things in New York and I'm like, I can't make it. So sorry. <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of great. It's this great kind of... And it's not that we haven't said it. It says it in bold letters on the front, Australasian art and culture. But um, they... Yeah, So, and I think that's interesting because, you know, that's always been the great Australian dilemma, this tyranny of distance and all these kind of things that we grew up learning. And in some ways, those things have not changed. You know, they're still there, this idea that Australia is actually very far from everything. And yet, when it comes to doing something like publishing you're really not you can kind of do whatever you want and we have we do have writers who are all over the world who will send us pictures and stories and that's an amazing thing so i've got a, a writer in london who just did the story with jenny holzer in new york so that's kind of how it how it all comes together we try not to be too tied down um but it's very much centered in australia yes. so you've got australia and things from other places yep. and you distribute obviously in Australia, yes. and also in New Zealand yes. a lot. Where Do you distribute the magazine further afield? Well, we, d we distribute switch? internationally, and Grace will know those destinations, where they are, but we, we do distribute internationally. 
Um, I confess I don't know where. But it's in museums and galleries. It's in museums and galleries and then select stores um, that, that sell it. Yeah, and we have obviously um, digital subscribers as well, many of whom are overseas. Do you have mm -hmm. aspirations to have more international distribution? Or yeah. I mean, that would be lovely. Yeah. That would be a lovely thing to do. Because I, I mean, I think, well, you know, we always talk about this print being dead, but of course it's not because look at this bookshop yeah. we're sitting in. And yeah, I think that would be amazing to have yeah. more international distribution. And I can certainly see that the reach is there. You know, people, as I said, people think we're already overseas. So it's kind of a funny thing. Um, so a lot of the publicly funded uh, magazines have uh, disappeared mm. or are struggling. Mm. Um, but Vault is entirely commercial, it's not public mm, funded mm. at all. How do you see Vault sitting in this new publishing landscape mm, and mm. what does Vault add to it? I think it's a really good question because I think there are so many things that are unfortunate about that, you know, and what's happening to Art Monthly and these journals that have been really key and certainly I've written for Art Monthly, like all of those journals. There isn't one journal in Australia that I haven't written for when I was a young uh, art historian curator and so I feel very sad about that, you know, the demise of a journal. I mean, it's still around, but it's struggling. And I think probably our point of difference is that because we're not tied to public monies, there, we, we, we don't have to just cover what's happening in Australia. And I think that probably sometimes is the challenge for those journals because it's a smaller pool of stories and a smaller pool of artists. And so there is a challenge when you you know, there's a big show on and everyone's covering the same thing, you know, becomes sort of tricky, I think. Um, but we, we don't have to do that. So what I like to think is that we potentially fill a gap um, and, and because, you know, we'll include fashion or architecture or music or some different things because there's all those synergies with all of those things. And other journals don't really do that. Um, other art journals are, are more specifically tied to that, I think. So I, th I, I see that as our point of difference. Um, and I think the other thing is, uh, not that I think this of other art journals, but I think that uh, what, we, what I try to do is that we try not to preach to the converted because I'm really passionate about that. Like I actually like, my mum is 85 and she reads it from cover to cover. And she called me the other day and she said, I just had no idea <laughs> about AI. And she's, she's very smart, my mum. She's erudite, she can read, you know, and she wants to know more about it. So she's going to go down that rabbit hole and read some more. But I, I really don't love those, that kind of writing. That's, that's not my kind of writing. I think, why not? Like it should be that my daughter could read it or that my mother could read it. So who is your reader or who do yeah. you imagine your reader is I when don't you're... Know. I mean, look at all these people here today. Yeah. Um, I think that our reader is someone who is curious and yeah. is open to ideas. That's what I think. So it's very interesting. Like we'll get feedback on stories. I'm trying to think some of the ones um, that have been really popular and you know it's it's very interesting whenever we do look to the past if we feature an artist who um is no longer around like peter perrier for example people are like oh my gosh i had no idea you know like that's so interesting to me um and that that's the one thing i find fascinating is that i think a lot of journals and a lot of writing and i think sometimes you know i'll be general a lot of culture in general doesn't look to the past enough like we, we're just so intent on moving forward that, that there is this 
um, lack of willingness to stop and look back. And I, I, I personally think you need to be able to look back to go forward, you know, and there's so many great practitioners who, whose work gets lost in, in this obsession with the new and the now, and I kind of You've find it a bit boring. You've just an issue called the future. I know, <laughs> but but there are artists in there, like, like Tutsuo Miyajima, you know, and that's kind of the point. You know, we wanted to, to make the point that artists have always been talking about the future. They've always been thinking about what next, what now. And as we sort of said, you know, the future is now. This is it. Weirdly, you're in it, right? Like, and then the next thing and the next thing. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of passionate about looking at those mid-career and established artists as well. Um, so, in the digital realm, how mm. do you see the future for, for print, for print, and for print yeah, generally, for print. Yeah. I think it's really good. I think it's really healthy. I mean, does anyone else buy as many magazines as I do? It's a real problem. Yeah, I have like a staggering. We were often joke that they'll fall over and kill me in my sleep because there's a lot of, and it's a really broad. I have a broad church of magazines. I, I personally love print, and I don't think. I think if anything, weirdly, the digital has sort of enhanced the desire for print. So I, we do find people will buy it and have a digital subscription. Oh, so it's like uh, weaving and ceramics. <laughs> yes, yes, totally. I think it is like that. I think we're all of that kind of tactile stuff. And and then, you know, uh, all of those things are collector's items in essence. Like they're small, small batch things. They're collector's items. It's like, you know, no one really does printed invitations anymore for shows. And those things were so great to have. Like a printed invitation is, it's archival. It's, they're collector's things you know they're kind of special i mean the art world remains in love with hard copy it print does. doesn't it it Everybody really does can you think of one artist who'd be like i'd be happy just to have a digital monograph <laughs> not one <laughs> not one because dare i say vanity publishing but it's not it's not vanity publishing because it is a, something really meaningful well, about having I, a book think, that um, you can pull i think and there are great get. things about vanity publishing i yes. mean i think i think a lot of publishing in the art world is vanity publishing it's, Things that people want to publish, it's not necessarily driven by what people want to read. It's yeah. what people want to say. Yeah. And a lot of great publications at all levels yes. are driven by uh, people who want to publish them, <laughs> people uh, that want to read them. No, but and right. 10 years later, I think people appreciate why that was so important. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I actually think, you know, um, independent publishing has kind of you know, just gone crazy since the in, the since the digital realm came along. Like you walk into a news agency and it's full of fashion magazines I've never seen before. I'm like, God, this is amazing. And who is making this and who is making that? It's quite incredible. It, you cannot say that it's well. I don't think it's harmed. I think it's harmed when it's tied to public money. I think that's a problem. Um, I, I think that is a, an issue because I don't know how those institutions, how those magazines. They're all essentially going for the same funding pool of magazine of, of advertisers. You know that's a trick. It's a trick to do that. It's the least lovely part of publishing, <laughs> having to get advertising. But hmm. how important is advertising? How do you approach advertising? Uh, is it your problem as no, editor? No, it's Grace's problem. <laughs> but look at how lovely Grace is. She's so sweet. And she's so lovely and she just make, charms people. And they're like, of course we'd love to advertise in bulk. Um, no, I, I actually am being tried that. I don't have to do that. Grace does do that. But we have some very loyal advertisers. And I think people who get get what we're trying to do, you know, that it's, it's a bit more... I don't know. I, I well, 
I'm really talking about what I think it is, which is probably different to what you guys all think it is. But I think people do think they'd like to advertise in Vault because it's a different level of maybe engagement, slightly different to other things. You don't get lost amongst all the the other ads, maybe. Yeah. Well, who advertises in a magazine is mm. very much a measure of what That's it's right. doing and yeah. how well. That's right. So, uh, yeah. So we do. You get a very quick take on who <laughs> thinks this is important yes. by who's advertising. Yes, yes, and and I mean I think now, um, you know, Grace gets approached before she has to go to them, which is a lovely thing too. So she is approached. You know, when is the next issue coming out? So we, you know, she's thinking a long way ahead about how to do that, and 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 I think it sounds it sounds weird too, but I think Grace thinks too about how to curate the advertising. Like, you know, it goes hand in hand. Like it's all part of that. We want it to feel like a nice experience when you're reading it, but. Mm. A lot goes into that. Who gets the right hand page? Who gets yes. the left hand page? That stuff's so important. So important, right? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, so, Volt stretches out into fashion, cinema, design, mm. all sorts of things. Is Volt a lifestyle magazine? And, <laughs> and is is art a lifestyle? Mm. You say it like it's a bad thing. Robert. I'm not saying <laughs> I'm asking a question. No, no. No, look, I, you know, I almost said. It's a lifestyle magazine. But I think it's a weird thing. Like, I think if you work in the arts, is it not your lifestyle? Is this not the thing we do all the time? Like, you know, we're thinking about the movie we're going to see or the... Yeah, so I, I'm okay with that. I kind of think it is. I think that that is the new sort of entertainment. And obviously when I say I don't want to preach to the converted, we kind of are, right? Like, we are pretty... We are all like-minded individuals who probably like the same kind of films or are prepared to open our mind to contemporary dance or whatever it might be. I think, yeah, probably we are doing a little bit of both. But what's interesting about that, yes, I do think art has become lifestyle. And you only have to go to an art fair to, to, to you know, experience that, that kind of, um, you know, I've written a lot about art and fashion and that crossover. And it is extremely interesting that that crossover. If you go to Art Basel or any of them, you know, the, all the fashion brands have sponsored the art fair, you know, they sponsor stalls, they sponsor shows, they have their own stalls in those shows. It, we would be naive to assume that there's not this completely kind of complicit relationship between these entities. Um, and I, I think that's one of the things that has always interested me about that relationship, you know, because fashion or art always likes to consider itself, you know, immune to commercial um, practicalities. But, of course, the art world is one of the most commercial businesses you know in, in the world and fashion has always sort of acknowledged that about itself it's a fashion says i am a deeply commercial beast and it's it's sort of makes sense that those two things come together so i think yeah i think that fat art is i think we'd have to be naive to say that it's anything other right um most certainly at the big end of town people who are buying and collecting that is how they are thinking about it it's like a it's an addition to the thing that they do in life. You know, it adds to all of that. But it's a little, again, I think about this idea of the, the, the multitudes of art worlds. There's so many different types of art worlds, you know, and obviously the IMA is quite different again to another kind of art world and how those things um, operate. But you've got someone like Daniel Boyd, who's such an amazing artist, but is, of course, very commercially successful. <laughs> so we can't be naive about those things. Like they are 
it's it's a reality. He's he's probably one of the most successful Australian artists. And also our pleasure in Australian artists yes. being successful on the world stage. I know. And, you know, this is like the dirty little secret thing. Like, no one really wants to acknowledge that. Like, somehow that's a bad thing. Yeah. And I, I personally have never understood that. Like, I, I don't even know for a second why we would think it would not be a good thing to be commercially successful. Like, why not? It's your job. It's what you're doing. You know, why wouldn't you want to... It makes no sense to me. I think that's a very Australian attitude about um, about art, you know, and this kind of uh, naive concept of, of how it functions. It just, yeah. What's the benefit of doing themed issues? Um, mm. uh, which was more successful, the environment issue, the sex issue, or the future? Well, that's a really good question. The sex issue was good. The sex issue was really good. And um, the sex issue was super interesting because uh, we also, and the thing about the sex issue that we, we decided from the outset we would look to the past as well. So we had Robert Crumb and Mapplethorpe and those things were big things because I really wanted that. And Robert Crumb, oh my God, like, and you imagine the hoops you have to jump through. Like he's quite, you know, sort of reclusive in some ways. But we managed to get hold of him and in the end he went and photocopied his own sketchbooks and sent them to us in the mail. In the mail. Like, here are, here are the things. And great, send me a copy when you're done. We're like, wow, you know, amazing. But the funny thing about that, because the minute you start looking up people like Robert Crumb and Mapplethorpe, you can imagine what my algorithm was sending me on my computer. And I was looking at my Instagram, I'm like, oh, dear God, like, so many things. And then I would have the proofs on my computer and the kids would go to work on the computer. I'm like, just shut that down. We just shut that one down. Because it was... A lot. It was a lot. I, I love that sex issue. It was a good one. It was really good. Helmut Newton, so good. So fantastic. And, I, yeah, that was a big thing we decided. We would go to look at the past because we forget that it's all – those people did it first. They did the really outrageous um, – Apple thought, my God, like, you know, people are so outraged today. I'm like, no, we did it. It's done, you know, like it's – and so well, done so beautifully. Yeah, so I think the sex issue was good. The environment issue was good. I think the future issue is good. <laughs> okay, no real answer to my question. Um, so uh, the new the, the new issue it was going to have an AI focus. Yes, it was. But it became the future. It did. Are AI and the future the same thing? And yeah. uh, what caused you to move from AI? Future. Yeah, that's that's a good point because we I think we just thought that AI is sort of became weirdly reductive in terms of uh, like a framing for all these different practitioners. Um, some of whom are using it, some of whom are not. You know, and it's just one aspect of what people are are doing in in terms of making. Because um, I think what's super interesting about the future, you know, we've got we, we're living in this age of artificial intelligence but at the same time we are seeing so much handmade work you know and if you look at the rise of um for example a lot of first nations indigenous practice the way it's being embraced by major institutions um ceramics as you mentioned before like my god like all these things that are incredibly hands-on uh making i think that that weirdly, I think that is the future. <laughs> I think that that kind of making of things will become the logical end to what AI proposes. So I think that 
the more AI can make something, the, the more we will potentially reject that and want the haptic experience. We'll want that thing. Sometimes I think uh, art engages with the real world, mm. and other times I think it retreats from it yeah. in very aggressive ways. Absolutely. And I think that kind of, um, sometimes that kind of uh, focus on the sort of the prevalence of mm. ceramic weaving and mm. stuff in uh, spaces that were previously showing a different kind of art, kind of conceptual yeah. art, new media, all that kind mm. of stuff. Uh, I, I don't know if that's grappling with the future or retreating from I, I think you're right. I think it is retreating. I think it could be retreating, yeah. you know, yeah. um, because, well, AI is not very warm. It's like it has it. And the thing that we talked about, at, you know, at ACCA was this idea that with AI, you're limited by the, well, not limited, rather. It's determined by the prompts that you give it. So that, you know, we made the joke about robots <laughs> rising up in the night and killing you in your sleep. But it's if, if we tell them that we are scared of them, then they might, <laughs> you know. But we need to tell them that they're good and useful and that could be great. So there is, it's all about how we, how we do that. But, and, you know, I even made the observation that during lockdown, so many people learned how to make sourdough, which to me just seemed like kind of fascinating, you know, like it was a fascinating thing. So all these things that ostensibly were in this realm of um, new now, everything now, but we are moving back to a kind of thing. So I think it is a retreating. Sourdough therapy. Yes, I think sourdough therapy. I actually didn't do it because it looked like really hard. Who made sourdough? Someone here did. I knew it. Yes, Susie would have. Susie did. Was it successful, Susie? Do you still have the mother? You still got your mother? Wow, that's good. I know. I know. Well, that's good, Susie. Maybe we should do a sourdough issue. <laughs> that would probably sell really well. We could put recipes. Maybe we should do a recipe book, Grace. That's good. I like that. Who wants a vault recipe book? That'd be funny, right? I like that. I think we might have just found our next theme, but anyway. Food. Yes, food. Mm. Um, so this, this issue seems optimistic and linking technology and the future. And last week, mm. um, you were talking in front of a William McInnes painting yes. at Philip Bacon, which offered a bleak future, <laughs> view of the future, attended by wrecked cars mm. in the desert. Um, and an earlier issue of Vault focused on environmentalism and climate change, and that again took us in a different direction. What happened to our climate crisis future, yeah. our prepper future? I know. Gosh, I don't know, Robert. It's not my fault. <laughs> no, I don't know what has happened to that. I think that this is a very interesting thing. And you know, like you asked me before about art being lifestyle. I think yeah. without a doubt, art is. Um, so influenced by trends. I mean, there was a time when you walked into a gallery, you couldn't see anything other than work about environmental issues, you know, and now I feel like it's completely not like that, like it's changed again. So I I don't know the answer to that because I think that I, for one, do feel pretty optimistic about where um, culture is going. And then other times at the moment, I feel like we're going to eat ourselves. I feel like what is happening... Uh, dialogue-wise in Australian culture right now in art is not great. And almost every day I think, I don't think I want to do this anymore. <laughs> um, so those are the things that, that, that get me down, actually. I think that, that sort of paralyzes me sometimes thinking it's not... 
I don't know how we can fix it. I don't know if we can fix, I don't think we can fix some of the conversations that are happening in the art world that to me feel really terrible. Um, and you you will note that Vault tends not to do that. We don't we don't really take um, a political stance. We're, we're not we're not doing that. I don't want to do that. I kind of want to make Vault a place where anyone can come and read it and come to their own conclusions. We're not going to engage in those things. Other people can do it, but we're not going to do that because I, I I feel a little bit sad about the state of the arts in Australia, to be really honest. I think it's a, uh, the culture wars are really polarizing and it's kind of not a nice space to be in sometimes. And I, I just think that for if we can offer something else, some other way in to work and ideas and thoughts, and then that's kind of, I think, my aspiration. That's not answering your question. Um, does answering, that make sense? It's answering a much bigger question. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I feel like that's important to me. Yeah. Um, so not everyone in the issue is a techno-utopian. No. But, but the issue does feel kind of tech-positive. It's, it's um, eye candy CGI with saturated <laughs> colours and algorithmic abstractions. Um, but Wolfson is kind of dark. Mm -hmm. And Michael Candy is a bit retro. Mm bit steampunk. Yeah, very. Um, where do you personally sit on the divide with mm. technology? Are you glass half full or glass half empty? <laughs> no, I think I'm glass half full. I think most of my friends would say I'm a glass half full person in general. But I have had a few little dabbles with chat GPT. That's just the only one I've really interacted with. And I found it really underwhelming. I was like, this is kind of boring. And the thing that was interesting when I was talking to Jordan about it, he also has not dabbled in it. Right? So that's kind of interesting, don't you think? It was only after we talked about it that he actually went on ChatGPT. And the thing that he said, and I think this is kind of true and maybe true of some of the work in the magazine, is that what's so interesting about AI, with all the things you can do with it, AI weirdly has this gesture that you can see. You can see it. And that, that to me is so fascinating. Like, essentially, this thing that is eradicating originality or personality has its own gesture and you can see it straight away like and, and and i think that is kind of fascinating so for me i am kind of interested in the artists who are trying to um like the thing that jordan talks about the tech is almost like a a conduit to something else so the thing that he talks about is human consciousness he wants to talk about humanity and he talks about when you look at an old painting, like Caravaggio, the consciousness of Caravaggio is transmitted to you across time and you are the receiver of the consciousness. And so with this work, which is not really giving away too much, it's essentially a cube, but it's based on Donald Judd. So his references are quite, you know, I guess literal and old school. Um, and the cube has arms which... Um, interact with its body and it's weirdly human <laughs> it's it's really it's one of those things when i stood in front of it i felt a little bit like oh my god like and and it's just a box it's a box with arms but it does these things that are really human and its fingers tap out and it has as many um 
well, they're not bones, but it has the equivalent uh, mechanisms like a human finger. And it does these things that I can't even really describe to you. It's very unsettling, but also, yeah, it's just so human. It's really strange. Like, uh, and then it, it, he talks about the work like theatre. So it has scenes, and each scene is different. But the most fascinating thing about it, without giving anything away, is that in essence, this robot is sentient, like it, it can do its own thing. It doesn't require you to program it, but he has programmed it, right? So it'll do a certain number of things. But if he stopped that tomorrow, it would just do its own thing, which is amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And so in, in the making of this work, he's been working with um, military programmers who, have, who basically program, you know, kill drones, in essence, things like that. But then also working with scientists at ANU and who have said this is the smartest robot in Australia right now. It's kind of amazing. You guys have to come and see it. It's really, really good. Did you ask him about Velvet Buzzsaw? Uh, well, you know what? He is very interested in all... He, his references are all very, very old. The things that motivate him, the things that he likes in art are... Nothing that you would think. None of it is new. None of it is new stuff. He's not really looking at... Um, he's thinking a lot and thinking about ideas. And I just wondered because in, in, in Velvet mm. Buzzsaw, there's this uh, sculpture which is... They make reference to it as being yeah. like a Wolfson yeah. that becomes a murderous uh, possessor. Yeah. I just wondered if... Yeah. Well, funnily enough, this... No... He didn't mention that, but he does talk a lot about theatre in the work, and he's thinking about it as like a almost like a performer, which is very interesting. And one thing that is nice, he's curated a show drawn from the National Gallery's collection, and it's all things that he likes, and it's not what you expect. It's really not what you expect. It's uh, like a Mapplethorpe and Diane Arbus, really lovely, unexpected things. Mm. I mean, I think Wolfson seems to be an interesting person mm. to interview because uh, he is never going to agree with an interviewer. You know, he has this kind of uh, mm. uh, contrarian tendency. Mm. And um, I found it interesting because um, he pushed back on a couple of leading yeah. questions that you made, and it was really interesting. And um, and I love the way that the interview actually leaves that in and captures that. Yeah. Right where you ask about performativity, and he says he despairs of interactivity yeah. because, hates it. quote, it removes the viewer from their witnessing state and overstimulates them. Mm -hmm. And he sounds like Michael Freed complaining about theatricality <laughs> yes. in the 1960s. No, you're you know, right. It's a very kind of old school. It is kind very of old school. Art, you know. Mm. Was it, a, it must have been an unexpected answer to... Well, it was because originally the robot was going to point at you. That was what it was going to do. Yeah. And it did do that. So it would focus on a viewer and just point, right? Was this like a box pointing at you, like totally freaky. And then he decided that was like too gimmicky. So he took it out. So it doesn't do that anymore. And then because he's like, I don't want it to be just like a joke. You know, this thing that's interacting with you. I want it to be bigger than that somehow. Um, yeah, you know, he was just much more um, humble and, yeah, quite interesting. It made me think a lot, actually, about that tech thing because, weirdly, it's just so human. I don't know, just really... I don't. I can't remember the last time I saw something that made me think about being so human. And I think a little bit about 
the Michael Candy as well. Like, there's something so beautiful about that work and balletic and, and just the way he uses tech as well is, is very, I think, aesthetic. It's very aesthetic. And it's probably the bit about technology that we often, uh, well, a lot of artists will avoid that aesthetic quality. But I think Michael Candy embraces that. So, which sounds trite, but he makes things that are quite beautiful. <laughs> They're quite beautiful to look at. So there is this aesthetic element that's very key to what you're engaging with, which I found kind of lovely. Hmm. I have more questions, but I'm actually going to leave it there <laughs> and see if anybody here has a question for Alison. Oh. <laughs> so, so it's interesting the way you describe his work and his references to the past. Mm. It feels more analog than digital. Yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's spot on. And in just the little bits of research that I've been doing, what's so interesting about that chat GPT thing? I mean, how, I'm assuming a lot of people here experimented. How many people have experimented with it? Anyone? Yeah. Everyone's like guilty going away, but it's fine. It's totally fine. I've done it too. But the thing that is quite interesting about it, it's such a weirdly analog process, right? You are telling it things. You are telling it, um, you know, people make something in the style of a medieval or whatever, you know, like, so all your prompts are really weirdly analog, <laughs> like things where we're like making these mashups of stuff. Um, I, I do think that that is one of those curious things about artists using technology because it's just coming from how do you, it, it's really just a tool, right? It's a tool that you're using to make something. So whether you're a filmmaker, like the films in there as well, which I very much enjoyed, um, they're quite analog too. Like it's it, it's a there's a real handmade quotient to it, which is surprising when you see this work. You'll get it when you see it. It feels really handmade. Yeah. Gary, mm. you, you said two things: the future is now, and then you inferred that it, in fact was going to be the obsolete. Then, because we have we operate within an ecology, um, and you envisage It is. It's very difficult to see because I, I think that very much the, the humanity is invested in the, the hand and mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. transmits that mm -hmm. to, 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 to the object of the mm. passions. But the kinds of metrics for funding, which seem yeah. to be about audience yes. numbers, yes. are inhibited mm -hmm. by the contact with artifacts firsthand that mm -hmm. requires a kind of presence where you. Um, Yeah, look, I, I don't know that I have the answer to that, but I, I think you're right. I think if you look at what is coming out of art colleges, like uh, just the recent shows at Griffith, I, for one, was struck by how much painting there was and um, weaving and, uh, gosh, what else? You know, the sculptural forms. And yet you're right. Like it was Sinotypes. <laughs> yes, yes, I know. Like <laughs> you say it like it's a dirty word. It's really not. Um, 
but it is interesting because you know you, you you have a lot of people seeking out wanting to how, how do you make this sanitizer? How do you do it? Like um, it seems miraculous, <laughs> like a miraculous process. This comes to the mm. to, to perhaps what is could be an observation. There's a disynchronicity between mm. what people want and yes. what they get. Yes. So those wanting to become artists yeah. are seeking, if you like, a kind of um, a, a knowledge about about making. Mm. And what institutions are trying to apply is knowledge about content. Yes. <laughs> so interesting. So so we have that, and also we have, for example, um. Yeah, look, I think I think everything you say is accurate, and I think it's for when you if if you look at um I mean there's an art teacher in the room here I think can attest to that. So you have all these young people at school making things, doing things, and then some of those will go off to art school and be like, oh my god, like this is not <laughs> what I thought art school was going to be, and there is a disjuncture there, one hundred percent. So I think, but what's interesting about that if you look at like the biggest artists in the world right now, and I'm thinking about. Nicole Eisenman or Dana Schutz or any of those, so many of them are painters, right? Like it's so, there is this disjuncture between what we think people want and I personally, this is just me being really personal, I don't love going into a gallery and wearing VR goggles. That's not my jam, like I don't love that. But a lot of galleries, that's what they think people want to see, right? So they'll do the children's programs are all computers and stuff now. And but then most often the kids will want to do the drawing and the the making. So yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that we, we're sort of given this idea of something that everyone thinks we want to to engage with um, because technology is so great and you can use it in this way. But it doesn't always it doesn't translate. There is there is a you know. So just this one that mm. uh, returns to your not seeking government funding. Yeah. Because often these outcomes are response institutional yes. programming Yes. the funding criteria. Absolutely. You don't have to do it, exactly. And, you know, we definitely, I mean, in this issue, we have Jess Johnson, and she is, um, they, she makes amazing work. Like, her work is, uh, a lot of it, it's a virtual reality, right? But for, for me, the way she approaches it is it's very painterly. Like, it has all these references to, you know, Escher and any number of great artists. So I find what she has done, I feel like she's used it as a tool to explore all these very interesting things. Um, yeah, but, but you're right. You know, we don't... Uh, we've sort of toyed a bit with doing video issues, and I was thinking, was well, that just weird to do a video issue in print? Is that just, like, strange and kind of boring to look at? I don't know. Um, I don't know the answer to your question, Gary. I'm not sure that I'm hitting the mark in terms of what you're asking, but I, th I, th I do think that all the time. I think that what we are seeing in galleries or what galleries think we want to see is not always yeah. the thing. No. Olympia. Oh, <laughs> this is scary. That's a really good question, and I did not set her up for that. Just so you know, um, I think that it's. I think that anyone who's working with AI right now, 
is a bit of a, um, it's kind of like cowboy territory, which I think is fun about it because, you know, you can be fun and be experimental and just have a go. So I think, I think it's kind of both things. I think it's, it's about what AI could be and it's about how AI fails a lot. Like, you know, you see a lot of bad artificially generated work. Um, and it's, it's kind of telling us all the possibilities and all the things that it's lacking at the same time. That's just my opinion. I think that when we see that AI work, a lot of AI work, it feels flat to me. But yeah, so I don't, I don't know the answer to your question, in essence. But are they going to be doing AI at school, Miss Jones, sort of thing? Mm. Mm. Interesting. I mean, I think it's a tool, right? Like, I mean, we, we, we talked about this, you know, that we talked about the death of painting when photography was invented. Of course, that didn't happen. <laughs> and uh, these things coexist in this beautiful way. And obviously, AI will coexist with all these other things that are going on. And it's the technology is changing so greatly. I know with the Jordan work, five years in the making, right? It's, it's an addition of three. From when he began that to, to finishing, and it's not really finished until such time as it's in the gallery and going, um, the technology has superseded itself so many times. It's a work that needs to be road tested. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's being road tested now. But here's the thing. That's something that he talks about too and how it will fail. It will fail because that's, that's what technology does, right? Because he's coming to spend time with the work after the show opens to see how it's... He's, he's doing it now and then after and as well. After. Yeah, to, to see. And um, things will break down and things will not work. Um, and you think about all those great early video artists like Bruce Nauman or whatever, which to me still looks really fresh. You know, that work still looks amazing. Um, and But that technology fails. It fails so much. And it's sort of a built-in redundancy, which I think is kind of powerful. It's a bit like having a car and driving it off the lot and it's immediately worth less than it was. Um, but, but that's like a knowing... Um, it's a knowing infallibility. You know it's going to do that. So it's almost beautiful in a way. Like it's, it's, who knows, but maybe it'll get so smart, the robot, that it'll keep going. I don't know. Like maybe it will. Maybe it'll not need it anymore. It's like uh, when people test out theatre productions, it's not yeah. to find out whether people laugh <laughs> or, or cry. cry at the right point. <laughs> or yes. hiss and boo. Or hiss and boo. <laughs> exactly. You never know it. Um, Alison, really interesting uh, connection between your interest in going to the past and then these artists also referring mm -hmm. in referencing other artists and being inspired by them. Um, the importance of art history yeah. is clear not only in your edit, editing or editorship, but also in the, uh, the way these artists are informed about their work. And so I... It, so that's one thing that I'd you know, like you to comment on, the importance of art history, because yeah. I think it's becoming increasingly important when you've got tech bros mm -hmm. producing AI-generated <laughs> art and saying that this painting I made, I made art, yeah, it's not a painting yeah. because it's on the internet and it's a material mm -hmm. object. It's then a print, it's never a painting. And they reference you know, the big names like Michelangelo mm -hmm. and so forth. So their art history knowledge is very, very big, mm -hmm. and yet all of a sudden they've become experts mm. on art. So that's a sort of cultural product side mm. of AI-generated imagery. But you know, the importance of art history, I think, is becoming 
even more and more integral mm. uh, for a critical language mm. to be built around in critical visual analysis mm. of the actual aesthetics, as mm. you mentioned, mm. before the term is over, just like it comment on the importance of art history. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, as a an art history graduate, I loved it a lot. I can see several art history graduates in this room. Um, the thing that I always thought was very interesting about art history is that it's so much more than art. Art, like you're obviously learning modern history and ancient history and social history and politics and literature, and that was the the clincher for me. I was like, that's amazing. So you, you're never really learning if you're learning about um, the Renaissance or. Um, gosh, it's something I think about something more contemporaneously or 1970s work, you really are looking at the time and the place and the, the literature and the music and that's the thing that I loved about it. And for me, sometimes that's the thing that I think is missing from, um, you know, I've just, my eldest daughter's just graduated and she actually did all those subjects, somewhat unsurprisingly, and also wants to do art history. But she was making the observation to me that a lot of her friends who, had, who were going um, to do... Uh, medicine or architecture or um, biology, whatever they were going to do at uni. When you, once you get to grade 10, you don't have to do any of those things. So she was saying that, and these are really dear friends of hers who she loves, she was saying, but they have, they are graduating. They know nothing, nothing about World War One, World War Two. They have no context for why Ukraine might be happening. They have nothing, nothing, because it is not in the curriculum and you don't have to do it. And it's kind of staggering. It's it's staggering things. I mean, these are not dumb individuals. They're, they're smart kids. They're smart kids graduating, going off to do that. They have There's no prerequisite for them to know anything at all about anything. And, and that scares the shit out of me, to be frank. I'm like, how can that be? How can it be that you don't know? How would you even begin to have a conversation around Palestine and Israel at all, like on any level, if you have no... Nothing, not even a base level history. Maybe that makes me old fashioned, but I think that's not great. You know, I think it's not great. I mean, I think art history is really, I think art history is really important. Yep, I'll go there. I think art history is really important, but uh, art history seems to change mm. minute by minute. I yeah, mean, it's it does. It's not like art history is a static thing. No. Against which we read things that are changing. Art history itself is. In a constant state. Being of revised, changed. Same with modern history and ancient history. It's all but changing all the time. That's mm. when you said, you know, people who are using the, you know, making the handmade are retreating from the future. Maybe some of them have actually looked at the future and decided <laughs> they want to create another future or an alternative future. So, you know, they're, they're bringing in that other art history, like mm. the Yeah. Mm. Well, I. <laughs> My kind of question jumps off that one because I think that it's a funny issue because it's all about the future, but it is probably one of our most art historical yeah. issues. Yeah. We've got Agnieszka Palat in there who's talking about um, the Renaissance workshop with her robot jobs like, and this idea of offloading some of the work to someone else, but it's your art. And yeah. I, I, well, I was really confused about crediting her art. Are we crediting the robot dog? Or are we crediting you for like 
I feel like you should ask Robert. Oh. God, I don't know. Like, it's weird because um, I sort of find Boris's work a bit there. I'm like, I'm interested. I wanted to put it in because I think it. I think he's asking really interesting questions. He's it's a provocation, right, around like a whole bunch of things. But that whole thing about authorship. We've already had these conversations about authorship, right? You know, in, in, we are the authors, right? It's not really the artist who's the author, but we, we, we agonise about this when we're writing journals about who do you acknowledge and uh, who do we credit, et cetera, et cetera. So that seems to me so movable and so changing. That, that, that is a bit scary, that whole sense of um, who is the author, right? Like how do we understand it uh, to have been made? And will it become irrelevant? I don't know. Like maybe that will or won't become irrelevant who made it. Um, but uh, yes, I think ideas are paramount um, and key. And yes, I think this is the most art, art historical issue we've done, weirdly. Like it strikes me that people are really anxious to look to the past as they go forward. One last question. glad you appreciate that thank you very much thank you um thanks for coming everyone i hope you enjoyed um listening to us as much as we enjoyed talking to one another that was fun we should do that again <laughs> thank you very much please thank you oh, thank you thank you robert <laughs>